right, what's up, Liquid Church? How y'all doing today? Awesome. So good to see you. I want to say what's up to our campuses watching throughout the state of New Jersey as we're all here for part three of our series, Fixer Upper. And uh, this is a show, it's based on HDTV uh, by, with Chip and Joanna Gaines. And uh, I remember when Pastor Tim said to me, you know, Nathan, we're going to be doing a series, we're going to theme it after the show, Fixer Upper. And I said, that's awesome. And then I go, what's Fixer Upper? Because, you know, I, I'm not a handy guy. I don't even know if this belt is on the right way. Like, you know, is it? I don't know. Um, actually, wait a minute. Oh, this is so much nicer. It's like the weight's equally distributed. Yeah, so, you know, I was like, Tim, I don't know what Fixer Upper is. I mean, my Netflix queue is filled with Marvel Comics TV shows and shark documentaries. Like, that's all that I feed myself with. And he's like, well, well it's the show about this couple, Chip and jo Joanna Gaines. He's the construction muscle. She does all the interior design. And so he said, here's your homework. I want you to watch some episodes. Go on YouTube. Look at some clips. Let me tell you something, guys. I love this show. This is awesome. Like, I love the chemistry between Chip and Joanna and their kids and kind of their whole vibe. Um, and, and, you know, let me tell you this. After seeing Chip, like, work on some of his projects, it gives a guy like me hope that maybe, just maybe, there is some handiness deep, deep within my soul, deep, deep within my soul that I can eventually bring to the surface. Let me show you a quick clip so you can kind of get a sense of their chemistry and kind of how the show runs. Let's just watch this real quick. This is definitely where you keep the dead people. Jojo, watch this. This is what I tried to do the other day, but hey, Chip, unsuccessfully. Baby, your baby, ankles we are too this. weak for that. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Chip, Hold on. Really? You have weak okay, ankles. Listen, that looks a lot farther than it is, but it's not. It's only like two or three feet. It's an optical illusion. Chip. Watch this. Oh. Ow! Someone oh. get on him. Oh. Oh. I'm okay. That was further than it looked. And man, <laughs> I fell and landed like a ton of bricks. And then there was a little hill underneath the house and I rolled down that. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm thinking, I know how to fall down a hole. I, I, I can fix up houses. Yeah. So this is a great show. Just love the chemistry. And it actually inspired me that, you know what, maybe... I could get involved in a fixer-upper. In fact, some friends of ours who uh, go to the Mountainside campus actually uh, bought a fixer-upper. So we went over there. I met up there with uh, Pastor Scott, who is the campus pastor over there, and we started kind of helping out. I actually brought a wrecking crew of my own. I brought my family. And I was inspired by the Gaineses, and my kids really got super intense into this. You know, child labor is not an issue in New Jersey, let me tell you. And so they just started going at it, and, you know, we're ripping out carpet. We're spackling walls. I'll tell you, there is something satisfying. You know, we started out with these carpets. We, we pulled them out, and there was this beautiful hard floor underneath. And, you know, there is something really satisfying about a home improvement project, right? You start and then you finish and there's some uh, progress and it ends up being a really neat thing. Um, but you know, this series isn't about home improvement. It's actually about life improvement, which often doesn't seem as linear. And sometimes you can make a lot of uh, strides forward, but you can't really tell, but you just gotta keep going. And that's why one of the questions we've been asking throughout this series is what's broken in your world that needs fixing? What's broken in your world that needs fixing? And, and you guys have told us, and I'm telling you, we have thousands and thousands of these cards from all across our campuses throughout the state of New Jersey. Some of you guys even took these home and prayed about it and then sent them in the mail. 
And I just want to say thank you so much for being so honest and so raw about some of the things that you're praying through, some of the things that you want to see rebuilt in your life. In fact, we got a great example right here. This person says, says uh, I'm praying that my health, which has deteriorated as a result of poor eating habits, I want to change. What a great prayer request. And here's another one uh, about anxiety. It says, anxiety overtakes me and has paralyzed me from acting on an important decision. I need help. And so we've been praying for these requests as they've come in. And here's one more. Uh, finances, rent, student loans, a wedding, unexpected health costs. And you know, as we have kind of been looking through these cards, one of the things we realize is these are really, really serious. And I just want to say, you know, on behalf of everyone on our team, how thankful we are that you're willing to trust us with some of the most vulnerable places of your life, the areas of deep brokenness. And, and I just have to tell you this, that each and every one of your cards, we've read through. Each and every one of your cards, we've been praying for. And as a church, we're praying for you for the next 52 days that we would see breakthrough in some of those areas. But, you know, let's be honest. Some of those areas were like, how, how do we start to make strides in them? If, you, if you're in debt up to, your, up to your eyeballs, how do you start to dig your way out of it? If you're struggling to rebuild your marriage or maybe a relationship with a child that's kind of frayed, how do you start? How do you begin all that? And we have a God who is, wants to partner with us in rebuilding the broken places of our lives. Amen? And we have this God who's given us actually a divine blueprint. We have the Holy Scriptures to help lead us and guide us into the path that he's called us to. And that's why we've been kind of walking through the book of Nehemiah for the past few weeks. Because Nehemiah was a guy who built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And that's why we were praying for 52 days to see God do breakthrough in our lives, uh, globally, and also in some of the local things that we want to see God move on. Now, Nehemiah was a book that I have a really special relationship with. And the reason is this, you know, I know many of you, you probably know my first name, it's, you know, Pastor Nathan, yeah? But some of you, the chosen few, even know my last name, right? Pastor Nathan Thompson. Now, some of you are like, Indian first name, English last name, what's going on there? That's a different sermon. <laughs> now, my middle name is Pastor Nehemiah Thompson. Now, you're like, Indian first name, Hebrew middle name, English? what's going on? People, I'm bringing everyone together. That's how I roll. We're all coming together, folks, for the sake of Jesus. That's what we do. And I loved learning kind of more about this guy, Nehemiah. He's this ordinary, run-of-the-mill guy, and he gets an extraordinary burden on his heart. Like, like you know, he, he's hearing news about how in his hometown, the walls have come down. No one's rebuilt. They haven't been rebuilt for 140 years. And remember, what did Nehemiah do? What was his job? He was a... He was a cupbearer, right? He brought the king his wine. He was like a glorified wine taster on a good day. On a bad day, if the wine was poisoned, you know, not a lot of great job security or health benefits there. So he was gone. And so Nehemiah comes before the king, King Artaxerxes, one of the most powerful rulers of the ancient world. And when you come before a Persian king, there better be a smile on your face because everything is awesome, right? But instead he comes and his face is sad. And the king says, Nehemiah. You've never been sad in my presence before. What's going on? And so Nehemiah says to him, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in what? Ruins. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. King, how, how can you expect me to go on like everything's okay? Things are not okay. In my hometown, everything's falling apart. So King Artaxerxes says, what do you need from me, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah 
in that place, like, you know, I'm already at risk, and so I might as well just go for it. He says, King, here's what I need. I need three things from you. I need time off to go back to Jerusalem. And not only that, I need you to write letters to give me safe passage from here to there. And then third, <laughs> I need the wood in your forest. I need resources so that we can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah makes those asks, and he kind of models for us what world-changing leaders do. World-changing leaders have defined their vision clearly. They define the vision clearly. They make bold asks, and so that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's making a bold ask of the king. He's got a vision. He knows what he wants to do. You see, many of us, you know, there's so many things Nehemiah could have done. He could have uh, built some schools. He could have built hospitals, but instead, here's my focus. I'm going to rebuild the wall and so we asked this question. This was your homework from last week. It was this. What is God calling you to do? What is the burden that God's placed on your heart, the thing that, that, that he's called you to do, your assignment? And then once we have a sense of what our vision is and we've defined it clearly, uh, Nehemiah also shows us what it looks like to make plans carefully. Nehemiah was the man with the plan. He knew how much wood he needed. He knew who he needed to go to. He needed what he needed to go from Persia, which is located in modern-day Iran, to Jerusalem. He, he had a plan in place, because if you don't have a plan, you can plan to what? Fail. And so that's why your homework was to this, was this, was what's my next step? What's your next step that you need to take this spring so that you can start rebuilding the broken areas of your life? Now, I did my homework. I hope you did yours. And I know when my wife and I were talking, one of the areas that we want to see God move as we're praying for the next 52 days is for wisdom on what we're supposed to do in terms of getting a new house. Like, we've been renting for a number of years, and so we've been taking all these little steps for many, many years to try to get to a place where we could finally feel like, okay, now we're getting there. And so I, when we first got married, we, we set up a budget, and we put a budget together, and then we came up with a plan to how we could start to eliminate our debt and we were excited to announce that this past year we were able to finally pay off a student loan, which was awesome. And not only that, you know, praise God, not only that, we were also able to, this year we're going to pay off a car, and we're able to finally start to put some money aside to save up for a home. And, you know, it's funny, we, there were times we were just like, oh, man, there's setback after setback. It was like two steps forward and three steps back. But now we look at all those small steps that we took, and we see that there was some progress that was made. And that's what it looks like when we're rebuilding our world. We take all these steps, little by little by little, and it seems like we're not making progress. It seems like we're not really kind of moving the dial forward. But then we take a look back and we see more has been accomplished than we've even realized. And that's what we see here in episode three in Fixer Upper. We see that Nehemiah sees how the small steps are starting to lead into something bigger. So if you have a Bible, I want to go ahead and encourage you to turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to 18, and uh, we're going to be kind of there. You can look in your phones or follow along on the screens as well. In verse 11, it simply starts by saying this, I went to Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah says. I want to pause here for a second, because these four little words, there's a lot going on here. Nehemiah has traveled almost a thousand miles to go from a modern-day Iran to Jerusalem. And this isn't like a quick journey. He doesn't just jump in, you know, in a car or a train or a plane. No, he's got he's to get in his all-wheel drive camel. He's got to shift that thing into fourth gear, and that's how he eventually gets there. This journey took him four months. Four months. Now, Nehemiah knows he's going to a city, and here's what you're supposed to see when you get to a city that, that, that you're traveling to. You're supposed to see something like this. 
This is actually uh, the Damascus Gate that's located in Jerusalem. And so look at it. It's fortified. It's strong. It's kind of intimidating. Like if you're attacking that thing, you're thinking, oh man, I hope, I hope we're ready for this, right? But instead, Nehemiah is greeted by this. Broken down rubble. Everywhere. A picture of devastation and destruction. That's what Nehemiah sees. This is a picture from World War II. And you see the rubble just kind of heaped on top of it. People are kind of in there looking for bodies. That's actually what Nehemiah came to. Heaps and heaps of brokenness and rubble. So after he arrives in Jerusalem, he says in verse 12, After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I just want to kind of point something out here. Is that Nehemiah didn't tell everybody what his vision was. He, he gets there, no one knows really why he's there, but he hasn't told anybody what his vision is. I think there's something there that we can learn. Be selective about who you share your vision with at first. Be very selective. Because some people, you'll share your vision with them, they'll get excited, they'll come around you, they'll encourage you, they'll get your back. But for other people, they actually might derail and start to dismantle your vision. See, Nehemiah has only shared it with, with a couple guys. He said, guys, here's what I see, here's my vision, and they're with him. And so they're with Nehemiah as he starts to explore the wall, as he starts to kind of see what's going on there. And in fact, we're going to take a walk with Nehemiah as he starts to inspect the wall. Starting in verse 13, you can go ahead and stare at the, see at the screens. Let's kind of walk with Nehemiah in his journey. It says this, By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So here, Nehemiah kind of starts over here at the western wall at the valley gate. He starts to go south, and he gets to what's called the dung gate. Now here's a picture of the dung gate today. It looks nice. It's like a tourist attraction here. But in the ancient world... You didn't want to be near the dung gate, right? Like you get from the name. But the dung gate is where they took out the trash, they took out the garbage, they took out like the animal waste, the people waste. Remember, there was no indoor plumbing in the ancient world, right? So it was stinky, right? And so this is how bad things were in Jerusalem. It was so bad that the poop gate was even broken down. It was just a mess. And so Nehemiah sees the devastation here, and he keeps going. It says, Then I moved towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, meaning there was so much rubble, I was stuck. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. So Nehemiah, you know, he comes down south, he goes, he sees a broken gate here, he goes up again, he sees another broken gate, and he's like, you know, I can't even get through, so he kind of goes around, and, and finally he's like, you know what, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. You see, Nehemiah, before he takes any action, you know what the first thing he does is? Nehemiah, he, he kind of looks around and he starts to inspect the damage carefully. He's going around and he's inspecting the damage carefully. So he has a good sense and a baseline of really how broken and how dysfunctional things really are in Jerusalem. That's probably another reason why he hasn't shared his vision yet. Because he knows it's bad, but he doesn't know how bad it is. It needs to know how bad it is so they can start to kind of put things together. You know, when you're rebuilding your life, often we want to get to work, we want to jump right into action. But really, we need to kind of take a step back, just like Nehemiah did, and survey the broken walls and the broken gates. Like over here, we see that the dung gate's broken, the fountain gate's broken, there's some parts of the wall that have fallen down. Nehemiah is taking a look 
at all those broken places. In the same way, when you want to rebuild your life, you kind of pause and say, what's broken? You see, the gates were meant to do one thing. You know what that is? To keep out the bad guys. That was what the gate functioned. When the gate was broken down, it left gaps. And now the enemy could flood in through the gaps, and the enemy could come in and cause all sorts of devastation and harm. And so if you want to rebuild the broken places of our lives, you've got to start closing those gaps. In fact, here's a great example. As someone said, can you pray for my marriage with my wife? I think part of it is we need prayer for communication. This is a great prayer. But you also have to know that prayer is not a magic wand. You can't simply say, I'm just going to pray and make everything better again. We actually need to pray and take action. In fact, that's the motto we see in Nehemiah. He prays and he acts. He prays and he does something. He prays, what's the next step? Let's do the next step. That's what Nehemiah does. And so when we pray, we need to say, what's the next step I need to take to really get to the root of the issue? For instance, in marriage, communication. You know, oftentimes, you know, we have a conversation with our spouse. We say something that we think is loving but maybe it's not spoken in their love language. They take it in a way that we didn't mean, and they get offended, and we get defensive that they got offended, and then they get critical, and then we get even more defensive, and they start yelling, and then we start yelling back, and you're like, this isn't how I pictured this going. But when we start to say, okay, what's the root of this? Let's actually dig down and see what the gap is. If the gap's communication, then we know what we need to do. Maybe we need to go see a counselor and sit with the counselor and talk through this gap and start to kind of close the gap up so we can start rebuilding the wall. Read some books on communication, learn how to listen well, and learn how to speak kindly. And as we do that, we can start to close the gap and rebuild the wall. Or maybe it's like what this person wrote. Um, I'm praying that my son would walk in sexual purity and resist pornography. This is a great prayer request. And I know many of you that have kids, you're praying that your kids would walk in purity, that your kids would walk in it just resisting the things around. And pornography, let's be honest, it's everywhere. It's not just coming in through the gate. It's coming in over the walls. It's coming under the walls. It's everywhere. But we need to ask ourselves, especially if you're a parent, what gates have I set up in my home? Do I have filters on my computer? Are all of our electronics in public and visible places where I can see what my kid's doing? Do I check their phone so I can see you know, what websites they go to? Do they have a TV in their room? Do they have a computer in their room? What gaps do we need to start closing so that they can build that wall of sexual purity in their lives? You see, so often uh, we just assume that, you know, you know, we'll just start rebuilding the wall. But if the gates aren't set first, if the gaps aren't closed, then we really aren't going to get as far as we think. We need to go deeper and go to the root of it. We need to inspect the damage carefully. You know, when my wife and I, we first got married, um, we, we took a class called Financial Peace University. How many of you have heard of Financial Peace University? How many of you have taken it before? Okay, and I was not looking forward to this class. You see, I had kind of, you know, my job was kind of to oversee the finances, and I had this strategy where if I got a bill I didn't know what to do with, I had this desk drawer, and I opened it, and it made its home there. And so pretty soon, I stopped opening mail. I'm like, oh, I know what this is, and I would just put it right in there. Not even look, receipts, all that stuff, and literally, this became like the drawer of doom. Like, this is where I'd put all this stuff. This is where it lived, and that was fine. Like, I would start to avoid it. Like, I'd see the drawer, and I'm going to walk around it. 
I was like, oh. You know, and so that's kind of how, that's how we did it. That's how I did it. And so eventually, you know, we're taking Financial Peace University, you know, and Dave Ramsey's talking. He's getting amped up. He's talking about gazelle intensity. He's talking about you need the nerd to kind of start kind of doing the budget. You have the free spirit that tells you how to spend it. So we're kind of, I'm kind of listening to all this. And my wife and I are looking at each other. Like, oh, I think we need to open up the drawer of doom. And I go, can you do it? She's like, no, you're the, you're the nerd. You're doing it. Okay. So I put it on my calendar. Okay, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us despair as we draw nearer to it. So, so I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm like, okay, I got I to get my, you know, I got to get hyped up. I got Rocky playing in the back room. Get in strong now, right? So I'm like, all right, this is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And so, but I'm like terrified. Like, is this going to be like, like in that Indiana Jones movie where they open up the ark and everyone's face gets melted off? Like, I'm seriously, I don't know what was going in my head. And so finally, I open the drawer, little by little, turning my face away. Okay, nothing's melting, okay? And so finally, I dig my hands down deep, and I pull up this monument to my ignorance. And so I put it on the table, right? Remember, ignorance is bliss. And then I start to do the work. I start to go through each envelope and I open them up and I start to put piles. Here are the bills and here are the utilities and here are the loans and here's, here's this stuff and that stuff and here are the receipts. And pretty soon, you know, my wife comes in, she goes, how bad is it? And I was like, you know, it's, it's not as bad as I thought. Like, you know, it turned out, you know, these were just our, I mean, this is the stuff, I mean, you know, we, we've got some work to do, but you know, all these other letters, like this pile, those were just late notices. Like, it's, it wasn't as bad as we thought, you know. But, you know, there's something, you know, we're, we don't want to do that. But when we start to actually go through the rubble and start to inspect the damage, we start to realize that, you know what? Maybe it's not as bad as we thought. Because one of the things that Nehemiah did is he's inspecting the wall and he's climbing through the rubble and he's seeing what's going on there. One of the things Nehemiah is also seeing is this part of the wall is strong. This part of the wall is solid. This part of the wall is still standing. We can build on that. Guys, as you're inspecting the damage carefully, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find areas that are strong, that are, that, that are strengths that you can build on. You know, I, I really thought that we were going to struggle in our marriage, but then we've got these great family members and we have these great friends that are all around us, that are encouraging us and praying for us and cheerleading for us, that, 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 that are there. See, that's a resource. Family and friends that can come around you. Or, you know, uh, you know, we were struggling with, with, with debt and, and all this stuff. But then finally, you know, our church had this program called Financial Peace University with people to mentor us. And we started to dig out slowly, little by little, and the moment, momentum grew. You know, we're a church like that. We have Financial Peace University. We have people that would love to help you start to dig out of debt. Or maybe one of the things you realize is that you have some strengths. You have some abilities and skills that you haven't even realized that you can actually start to funnel in towards the walls that are in your life and to start closing those gaps. But it happens when you inspect the damage carefully. You gotta inspect the damage. You gotta start looking at the wall. You gotta start going through the rubble. And none of us really wanna do that, do we? We don't wanna see how bad it is because we either will, you know, it's like a catastrophe. It's gonna be so bad or we minimize it. Yeah, it's not that bad. But when we can come to a place where we're like, all right, this is what it is, we can start going from there. And that's where we start to see God do some incredible things when we can acknowledge reality as reality. 
Now, Nehemiah, so far, this has all been secret, right? This has all been under the cover of night, very cloak and dagger. And so finally, Nehemiah is thinking, all right, we've really kept this a secret. We've kept this a secret from the officials we've, uh, who did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. And because as of yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. See, Nehemiah knows, you know, now it's time to go public. It's now time to put this on Instagram and Facebook. So he calls an ancient press conference. He starts to invite everybody up here, and he starts to tell them this in verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Now, you've got to see this here. So Nehemiah is talking to people who had lived in Jerusalem all their lives. They came back in the first wave or the second wave. So these are people that are looking around, and Nehemiah is saying, you guys see the trouble we're in? And they're like, well, duh. I mean, Nehemiah, we've lived here all our lives. Like, we know what, yeah, we see it. And Nehemiah looks at him and says, no, you don't. You see, you just see this as part of the background, but really, that's rubble. You live, and you've gotten comfortable with the destruction all around you. At first, when this all happened, it was like a four-alarm fire. We've got to get this out. We've got to rebuild. And then, it, they, okay, these are all ashes. That's how it is. And now, oh, it's the background. It's how it's always been. And they have kids, and their kids are like, yeah, that pile's always been there. They're taking out the trimmer, and they're trimming around it, right? Because it's always been like that. It's always been like that. And Nehemiah's saying, it has not always been like that. It is not okay that it's like that. And you guys have to see it that way. And this is the danger we all have when we're rebuilding our lives. We've normalized the dysfunction that we've lived in. We've normalized the fact that, yeah, I have breakfast at Dunkin' Donuts, my croissant witch every morning. Then I have my Wendy's Baconator triple size for lunch. And then at dinner, I have three Jersey Mike's triple the meat because I'm worth it, right? And we think this is normal. Everyone does this as we eat ourselves to death. Or you get to the end of the month and you've got one credit card balance. Oh, I don't know how we're going to do this. Oh, I can move this balance to this credit card. Yeah, and then take this credit card and move this to this credit card. And you're praying like, it's like credit card Tetris. Like, you know, you're just moving sums around. And you're like, this is normal, but you're spending yourself to death. Or you're like, you know, I don't really feel it when... I know I'm sinning right now, but I don't feel it right now. It's not a big deal. You know, I, you know, I, I still have that Instagram account that tells me Bible verses, I, I, and I share those sometimes. Meanwhile, you've been living a lazy, dying faith, and you've normalized it. What Nehemiah is doing here is he's trying to create a shock to the system. He's saying, guys, this is not how we're meant to live. You can't keep going this way and expect that things are going to go okay. You've got to do something differently. You've got to see with new eyes. The rubble's still there. The gates are still burned down. The wall is still broken down. But you've got to see that the wall's broken down. You've got to see that there's rubble all around. You've got to see the dysfunction that you're living in and say it is not okay anymore. It's not okay. See, Nehemiah is trying to show the people where they are so he can paint for them a better picture. Because world-changing leaders inspire people passionately. They paint them a picture of a better future. They inspire people 
passionately. And this is the ask that Nehemiah gives. He says this, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in what? Disgrace. Okay, a little context. You guys remember how long Nehemiah has been here? Three days. I know it was a trick question because I have the three right here. <laughs> He's been there for three days. These people have lived here for a generation and a half. And they're thinking, oh, here comes another fat cat politician, wants a photo op of the poor struggling people in Jerusalem so he can go back and tell the king, here's what I did. And this is where something interesting happens. Nehemiah actually stops preaching and actually starts to tell a story. He says, I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king and what the king said to me. So Nehemiah goes, guys, you got to understand, let me tell you my story. When, when my brother came and he told me that the walls had broken down after he came and visited, you know, my brother Hen and I, you guys know him, he told me what happened. I broke down and I wept. I, I, couldn't, even, I couldn't even eat because I was so upset. And then I went before, and I was praying for four months, and then they went before the king. And guys, you know what it's like. You can't be sad before the king, but I was so upset. It literally had, 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 been, had been tearing me apart. And I said to the king, on behalf of you, king, we need you to help us. King, we need you to give me time off. I, I need you to give me letters to the governor, and I need you to give me the timber in your forest, king, because, because these people are suffering. King, may you live forever. Will you come through for us? And he did. I risked my life so that you guys could have life. And guys, I'm here now. I'm here now. Because the gracious hand of our God, all of these events have been orchestrated by God. None of this is by me or my ability. Who am I? I'm just an ordinary cupbearer. I ain't got nothing. This is the work of God. God is moving here, y'all. We got to come along with him in this. And Nehemiah is telling him this story. He's painting this picture. And then he goes, guys, we cannot live like this. We are the people of God. This is Jerusalem where the temple exists. The temple is where heaven and earth meet. We cannot live like this. We cannot live in this squalor. We need to rebuild the walls. Will you come and rebuild with me? And the people replied this. They said, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. You know, I love in the original Hebrew, this phrase they began, it says they strengthened their hands. It's this picture of the gracious hand of God moving history in a specific direction and then handing it off to his people and said, let's work together in rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah was a man on fire. Nehemiah was fired up, not by his own emotion, not by his own cause, but by the cause of God and it moved him and it moved the people. Because that's what passionate leaders do. And it took a people who lived in a state of despair and they moved into a state of repair. They began to build the walls. They got started. That's what world-changing leaders do. Just ask Blake Mikowski. How many of you guys know who Blake Mikowski is? Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard of Tom's Shoes? Any of you? A few of you have. Blake Mikowski is the founder of Tom's Shoes. Blake Mikowski was this young guy who went down to Argentina and saw a bunch of kids. They didn't have shoes. Their feet were getting all sorts of diseases and worms and all this stuff, and it moved his heart. It set him on fire, and he's like, we've got to do something. 
who's going to do something about this? Why not me? And by doing so, he inspired people passionately. But he didn't just inspire people where they got excited and threw money. He actually inspired people and they joined him to do an incredible, incredible work. Incredible work that wasn't just in South America, but literally spread to the entire world. Let's watch that story real quick. Tom's didn't start with the idea for a shoe. In fact, it was the absence of a shoe that started it all. Argentina was beautiful. The music, the colors, the food, the people. But as soon as I left the city, I noticed this need. I knew nothing about shoes and very little about giving. But I had a simple idea. What if a for-profit shoe company used giving as its business model? One where for every pair of shoes sold, a new pair would be given to a child in need. One for one. They'd be shoes for a better tomorrow. Tomorrow shoes. So I called them Toms. I remember boxing some of the first Toms at Blake's apartment. We sold 10,000 pairs that first summer, so we gave away 10,000 pairs. 10,000 pairs that protected children from disease and infection, that completed the school uniform, helping increase enrollment. We gave repeatedly, going back time and time again to the same communities, watching the kids grow up with Toms on their feet. 10,000 became one million, two million. A spontaneous response to a simple need had evolved into something much bigger than we had expected. We were learning to give by giving, and we were getting some of it wrong. The criticism made us take a closer look at what we were doing, and this led us to a realization. One for One wasn't a corporate policy, it was a movement. We weren't a shoe company at all, we were a giving company, and this changed everything. I was hired to grow the giving department. Now we have an entire team of people devoted to learning how to give better, to take feedback we had received, and to do more. We designed new giving products, winter boots for colder climates, sneakers for play in our city streets. We evolved from just providing aid to supporting economic development. We partnered with factories in Kenya, India, Ethiopia, hired artists to hand paint shoes in Haiti, and made a commitment to produce one-third of our giving shoes in local markets. We work with local NGOs to deliver shoes right up to the last mile. But we saw that the communities needed more. They needed wells, prenatal care. There was malnutrition, devastating diseases caused by shoelessness. So we dedicated a percentage of our sales to help and took on podoconiosis as a personal cause, funding clinics devoted to eradicating the disease. It's inspiring. So inspiring to see what one man's vision could lead to. But for me, it's not just the vision that's so powerful, it's how he brought people in. You know, to this day, right now, 60 million pairs of shoes have been sold by Toms. That means 60 million shoes have been given away all over the world. But you know, Blake McCuskey couldn't do that all by himself. He inspired people and he asked him to join him. It started out with a, with a handful of interns and a guy that made his own shoes in South America. And then it led to this global movement where they don't just do shoes, now they do glasses, uh, now they do uh, health clinics and they do community development. But it started when this guy named Blake got so passionate about something and he saw a need and he, and he got so fired up, he literally, like Nehemiah, was set on fire and he asked people to join his cause. You know, I love this quote. 
it's often attributed to John Wesley. No one knows who really said it, though. It says this, light yourself on fire, and the people will come for miles to watch you burn. People respond to passion. Passion moves people to action. And so when we are able to be people of, of passion, it moves. Nehemiah was a man of passion. He lit himself on fire, and this pagan, anti-God king said, Nehemiah, I'm on your team. Nehemiah, I'm on your side. I'm joining you in your cause. So let me ask you this question. Who supports your passion? Who supports your passion? Who, who are the people that you are inspiring and that you're asking to join you in your cause? The people that are praying with you, that are maybe asking you challenging questions, the people that are encouraging you, the people that are resourcing you. Maybe they're coming alongside of you and cheerleading for your marriage as you fight for your marriage or as you're fighting through your debt and your finances or as you're kind of building your career back up. Who are those people that are coming around you to support your passion? Because that's what moves us to action. Who inspires you to do that? I know that for me, Liquid Church inspires me, always has. In fact, I remember being a 21-year-old kid, hearing about some young adult service at this church called Millington Baptist. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll go meet girls there, so I'll go. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. I'm very glad I didn't. But I went there, and I'm like, the room is dark. There's candles. They're going to light something on fire. You know, there's a fog machine. And then this dude with this big hair comes up. He starts preaching and preaching. And it's three hours, and he's still preaching. But let me tell you something. I loved every second of it. I loved it. And I remember leaving, I think the first time I came there, going, wow, that was amazing. God's hand is on this place. I wonder what's going to happen to this. I wonder if this is going to be around another year or two. I wonder if I get to be a part of this one day. And over 13 years later, I'm here. Man, that's like move of God. That is the gracious hand of God moving. Amen. Amen. And so we are all here together. You know, we don't go to Liquid Church. We are Liquid Church. You all understand that, right? We are the church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited as we are on this precipice of this new phase as we're going into this new building. As exciting as it is, you know, it's not about the building, right? You know that, right? But it's about the people. You know, we've had thousands and thousands of people get baptized here at Liquid Church. It's incredible. In fact, here's a picture a couple weeks ago. I got to baptize uh, my friend Nissy. I've known Nissy since she was eight years old. And so she, you know, she actually Facebooked me one day and said, Hey, Nathan, there's this place called Liquid. What do you think about it? Like... I don't know, the name's kind of where I go, you should come! I'm here! And she came, and she got baptized, and she got involved in a small group, and she's going on a clean water trip, and this is one life that's been transformed by what we as the church have been part of. It blows my mind. And so when I think of our vision, which is to saturate the state with the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember, it is not about a building. It's our vision statement to remind us it's not about a building. It's about getting into to our new building so that we can go and launch new campuses because new campuses creates new Christians. You know what fires me up about that? A new Christian means it's a new life that's been transformed by the power of Jesus. It's a family that's been transformed by the power of Jesus. It is a community. It's a town. It's a neighborhood that's transformed by the power of Jesus. It's not about a building. It's about building people up. And I wake up every day, and that fuels me and gets me going. 
And that's why, uh, just as Pastor Tim and the rest of us, we want to encourage you to join us to pray for the next 52 days that God will open up the doors and open up hearts, to open up whatever needs to get opened so we can get into our new building and see this next phase, this next season of God's vision become accomplished. World-changing leaders, they inspire people passionately. And if it's a God-given vision, it inspires people eternally. What's your vision? What's your vision? What are you rebuilding? What just seems so big and so unable that you can't even accomplish this on your own? It seems crazy to think about. What is your vision? Maybe if you, for you, that vision is, I got to rebuild my marriage. I've made so many poor decisions. I've hurt so many people. God, how are you going to fix the gaps in this relationship? We're thinking, God, I need to rebuild my career. I don't even know where to start. I got laid off. I'm not sure what to do next. My relationship with my kids, it's so rocky. I don't even know how to start to put that together. God, I've been spending my money carelessly. I don't, I don't even know what to do. You know who cares more about rebuilding the broken places of your life more than you? Jesus does. Jesus is the master carpenter. He wants to rebuild your world because you are destined to be whole. You are destined to be complete. You are destined to be made or have the image of God restored in your life. That's who you are. That's who you're made to be, church. In 400 BC, there was a man named Nehemiah, an ordinary cupbearer, a glorified butler, that God gave an extraordinary task. He said, I want you to go inspect the damage carefully, and I want you to inspire the people passionately, and you let me do the rest. And he built a wall in 52 days, less than two months. That's not a man thing. That's a God thing. God thing. And so my prayer for us, and we're not going to go to the throne of God and ask this. We're actually going to declare this because God did it once and he wants to do it again. Amen? We're going to declare that, God, would you do it again? You did it for Nehemiah. Would you do it for me? You did it for Nehemiah. Would you do it for my marriage? You did it for Nehemiah. Would you do it for my town and my neighborhood? Would you do it again, God? Because he's a God that loves to do it again. He is the mountain-moving God. He's the God that makes a way when there seems no way because that's who our God is, amen? Amen. amen. Would you stand with me? When you declare something, you got to stand. You know what I'm saying? we got to get, get fired up about this. Amen. How many of you need to see God rebuild something in your life right now? You can just put your hand up. All across our campuses, you need to see God rebuild broken things. Spirit of God, we invite you to come. Lord, we can't rebuild anything on our own. We just can't. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough passion, God. So we need you to be the one that fires us up, God. We need to be looking at you, Lord, not ourselves, not the things that we don't have. You're the one that rebuilds the broken things all around us, God. You care more than we do. You are the great carpenter. You are the master architect. And so, Jesus, we declare right now to do it again. Did you say do it again, church? Do it again. Say it again, church, with me. Do it again. God, you did it before. Would you do it again in Jesus' name? Amen.